Suzanne Legrand, and this is The Shaman's Notebook. Today, my guest is Rabbi Wayne Dosick, who is a teacher, spiritual educator, and award-winning author, who has recently published Radical Loving, One God, One World, One People. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Very nice to be here. So the Beatles said it most famously, all we need is love. But uh, given the state of the world today, love seems to be in particularly short supply. I'm wondering if you could, first of all, tell us what exactly you mean by radical loving. Well, radical loving has a number of components to it. The first the thing is to know that there is one God who created us all, who is the parent of us all, who loves us all equally, doesn't play favorites, and says to us, I love you with greatest love, with eternal love, and uh, I hope you will love me, and I hope you will learn to love each other, because any problems that are going on there on my earth, our earth that we share together, uh, is because you don't love each other, because you are in conflict with each other. So that's the first thing. And radical loving means that each of us, it's our job to see the face of God in each and every other human being. So when you look in the mirror, Suzanne, you see Suzanne, but you see God. And hopefully when you look in my face, you see Rabbi Wayne and you see God. So when I look at you and you look at me, we see God in each other, which means that the only possible response to hatred or anger or fear or anything else that we might not like about another person, the only possible response is love because we are looking at the face of God. And radical loving means to treat another human being, the life of another human being, to make that as precious to you as your own. When we have those elements, and there are more, but that's that's a quick summary for our beginning conversation. Uh, that That's radical loving in the greatest sense, divine love and human love combining in the caring and sharing and kindness and goodness and decency and dignity and righteousness and justice and compassion and love for each, for each human being. So maybe you could explain then why we have so many different religions and everybody has their version of God, but it seems that this idea that everyone is one, it seems to elude a lot of these religions, at least in practice. Well, what we don't understand is religion is merely a pathway. The theme, so you're right. The theme song of the world seems to be these days, my God's better than your God. Mm-hmm. And my God, my God's scripture is better than yours. And uh, his and, and his or her principles or values are better than yours. And therefore God loves me more and loves my nation more and loves my religion more and loves my people more. Well, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible because there is only one God. Now, over the years and the centuries, We've created different pathways to that one God, from the genesis of all of us to from God to God. But the reality is that it's only one God. And sameness, oneness does not mean sameness. 
So we create very different paths. And each path is beautiful. I mean, I taught for years at the University of San Diego, which is a private diocesan Catholic university. I went to mass very often. It's beautiful. I loved it. But it wasn't my pathway. One of my closest friends was Father O'Leary, still is Father O'Leary. And, and um, he came to my services sometimes. But Judaism isn't his pathway. Catholicism is. So we each create our own pathways. Where we got fooled, and this is the key to your, to your question, where we got fooled was that we each received, each kind of faith community received a continuing and a new revelation. So the Hebrew scriptures, we thought, were better than whatever came out of the pagan world. And Christianity came along and said, ah, the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. We'll even call it replacement theology. And as Muslims came along and said, Islam's Quran is better than the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And the Eastern religions and the Native American tribes say, ha ha, our scripture and our teachings and our stories and our tribal tales are the best. No, they're not replacement of what was. They are, they are an addition to what was because human consciousness evolves. You don't teach your four-year-old, your five-year-old child what you're going to teach your 15 or 16-year-old child because that child learns at different levels as he or she grows. Well, the same thing, humankind has grown constantly. We're constantly growing. We evolve human consciousness. So in the beginning, God gave us what we could absorb at a given time. We grew. There is an addition, a new revelation to what was, but it doesn't replace. It adds on to. And if we all understood that, then we would understand that wisdom belongs to everybody. It's not contained to one particular religion or faith community, that world teachers are world teachers, be it Abraham or Moses or Jesus or Mohammed or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King. Wisdom teachers are all sent by God to teach us all, not one narrow little group. That's where we got fooled. And part of my message is that it's time for us to stop being fooled and understand that this wisdom is for all of us. So I think one of the complications that I see in this is that there's also an issue of power control and domination that sure. is um, that oftentimes lines up with one religion or my religion is better than yours, right? So it would be, right. you know, I agree with you that every religion has its own wisdom, but, you know, we've had lots of situations where certain groups, different religious groups at different times have been persecuted because a a particular religion has been aligned with power. So can we talk about um, how it is we move towards a oneness when we have real divisions of power um, and issues of, you know, some groups having more control um, and privilege um, and those oftentimes aligning with certain religious beliefs, right? Mm-hmm, right. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's been the problem. So God in the beginning said, 
listen, I created you and I know you, I know you intimately and I know you well. And I hope that we will have not just a communal relationship, but a deep, personal, intimate, loving relationship with each other, each individual and God. And here's a set of rules, because I know you so well. Here's a set of rules that will help you get along with each other. If you follow those rules, then things will probably be pretty good. If you don't follow them out of greed or arrogance or a desire for power or a lack of conscience, then there will probably be some trouble. And we have been the witness to and sometimes the perpetrators of that trouble. And what's it gotten us? That's the question. What's it gotten us? All it's gotten us is our cemeteries full of the young, best young people of our lands. It's gotten us an earth that screams out in pain for all the blood that we spilled on it. And it's gotten us maybe a little more land, maybe a little more money in our treasuries, but it hasn't gotten us anything really. And so part of this message is you're absolutely right. And what good's it done us? So since it's done us no good, and we are learning because this world is such a tiny little village now connected by this technology. I mean, I'm in San Diego, you're in Portland. We're talking to each other as if we're around, right around the, the same table. That unless we learn to, to get together and get it together, unless we learn to live together in peace and harmony and tranquility, we take the chance that we will perish together. Mm-hmm. This is no longer little... Uh, regional conflicts. This is the whole world all at once. And so we need a new pathway. And so this this book, Radical Loving, One God, One World, One People, suggests that because there is one God and we have one world, that we have to become one people in oneness consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that happening, given that we're starting from such a place of division and strife i mean let's call it what it is it's racism it's sexism it's misogyny it's um white supremacy it's nationalism it is uh islamophobia it is anti-semitism it is all the bad stuff that Mm -hmm. hurts other people so if we want to look at it we have to name it because those are the poisons that are that are hurting us so much so the steps forward have to do with a the recognition of that and b the understanding that there's plenty for everybody there is plenty for everybody we can feed everybody everybody can have a place to live everybody can have uh, an education for children as long as we do not demonize the other and we all say you're a human being i'm a human being we need to share we need to understand each other so I always ask people, now this may, may seem trite to you. So obviously, you're asking deeply philosophical questions, which is really a very good thing to do. Um, but I always ask, uh, well, the, the twin of radical loving is awesome holiness. And part of awesome holiness is saying to each person to be godlike in your every word and thought and deed. So what if your every word and thought and deed of today were captured on a continually running videotape or film. And we're going to be played as the six o'clock news tomorrow night. 
and you had to call your parents or your children or your grandchildren and say, watch me on television. Would you be happy and proud or would you be embarrassed and, and ashamed? Now, some people have no conscience, so they have no shame. They have no embarrassment. And those people eventually burn themselves out or get isolated out by the rest of the world. People of goodwill and good faith came together to defeat an Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. People of goodwill and of good faith came together to vote a particular point of view and its perpetrator out of office. So I would ask you, for example, just to think of the name Darnella Frazier. Darnella Frazier, the 17-year-old, then 17-year-old little girl who had the presence of mind and the inner peace and the courage to stand there with her iPhone taking the video of the police officer who was murdering George Floyd. And she stood there for nine more than nine and a half minutes. Without her, there would have been no video record and the policeman probably would have gotten away with murder. But because this little child had that courage and that peace of mind, he was convicted of murder, which he should have been. So we can all be that person. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be, uh, um, Martin Luther King or Alec Walensa or Mother Teresa. There's an old uh, story that uh, there was this fellow named Zusha and he gets to the heavens and uh, he's worried that he's not going to be worthy. So he's saying to himself, he, and he's saying to God, I wasn't as good as Abraham. I wasn't as good as Moses. And God says to him, were you the best Zusha you could be? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So are you the best Suzanne you can be? And and if you are, that will that will ooze out to others around you. And so how is key. it? This is this is really interesting. So thinking about applying this, um, I would say, like many people, I have fear, right? And uh, and I think there's also a lot of trauma that that informs uh fear right that that shapes it so how is it given the world as it is right now we can move into a place of being more benevolent or more trusting or or seeing the good in people even people who we may disagree with well, it's so interesting you should say that because, first of all, it's it's a really honest admission that you're you're afraid. And in last week's uh, scripture reading in, in the, the Jewish uh, synagogue, uh, we read the words, do not be afraid. And I looked it up. I just happened to be interested in it. So I looked it up in a concordance and saw that that phrase in one grammatical form or another is used well over 100 times in the Hebrew Bible and add in the New Testament, it's there 350 times or more. Why? Because we are afraid. So the scripture keeps telling us not to be afraid. So, okay, so how do you do it? How do you do it? You, you begin to see the face of God in every other human being. First of all, 
there is what we call grace. Grace is providential love. You get it just because God loves you. Say to yourself, I don't have to do a thing. God loves me. And then there's what's called covenantal love because we are in a covenantal relationship with God and God gives us that that kind of love. And then there is there's compassion or mercy. Compassion means to walk step by step with someone who's suffering. So first we ask God for God's compassion for us. And then we say, okay, God, we're going to give you some compassion because it's not easy being God and we have compassion for you. And then if we can do that, then we can have compassion for each and every other human being. And at the same time, we can have compassion for ourselves because who needs your compassion more than you do? So we say to ourselves, okay. And again, it begins with each individual. I see the face of God in every individual. So if the teller in the bank is taking too long and you're in a long line, you could be fuming. Or you could say, that's a child of God. Or if the kid in the convenience store can't make change without for a dollar bill without using his little calculator, you say, that's a child of God. So I'll tell you this story. It's in the book. When my kids were little, we uh, we tried to institute the teachings of an ancient sage. Of him, it was said that when, if he ever went to the market and needed a piece of meat, he would buy two, one for himself and one for the hungry in his neighborhood. A, b- a bunch of vegetables, two bunches of vegetables, one for himself and one for the hungry. So when the kids were little, we said, okay, every time we go to the store, we'll buy one more item of non-perishable food a can of tuna fish, a jar of peanut butter and jelly, can of uh, um, a box of cereal, a box of mac and cheese. Won't even take it into the house. Put it in a brown paper sack in the trunk. And every time we fill up two, three sacks, we'll take it to the local uh, food pantry. So I'm in the store one day with my younger son, who was then five. He's pushing 50 now, so this is a long time ago. And um, I took a box of cereal off the shelf. And I said to him, honey, how about this as our food gift for today? And this little kid looked at me and said, no. Precocious then, still now. So I said, why not? And he grabbed the cereal out of my hand. He put it back on the shelf. And he stood on the shopping cart on his little tiptoes and took another box of cereal off the shelf and held it up to me and said, look, dad, this will be our food gift for today. And I said to him, honey, what's the difference? He said, look, dad. There are hungry kids out there, too. And kids like sugar frosted flakes better than we like Cheerios. (laughs) So in an instant, that little kid taught me to see not the face of a category of people, not the hungry, the poor, the needy, but the face of a child whom we were helping to feed who likes one kind of cereal better than another kind of cereal. You see the face of another human being. And you say, that's the face of God. How do I treat God? And that's how you treat the other human being. And it suggests also in your example that part of radical loving is maybe figuring out what specifically someone else needs in order to (sighs) feel loved. Perfect. So I've just met you, but we're friends already, right? Let's say we're very good friends and you're, unhappy you're depressed you're not feeling well so i say to myself self i say my friend suzanne isn't feeling very well 
how can I love her, right? Treat her as I would like to be treated. The old golden rule. How do I love my neighbors? I love myself. So I say, well, if I were depressed and I were unhappy, I'd like to go to a Padre game. So I get you tickets for the baseball game in your town. And I'd buy you a hot dog and a beer and we'd have a great time, except you don't want that because you don't like baseball. You might rather have tickets to a museum or to a ballet or to a a theater or to a symphony. So I have to think because my neighbor is just like me, but is unique and a precious human being. So I say to myself, what would make Suzanne feel better? So it's a it's a concept I came up with called F-A-N-A-M-I. Find a need and meet it. Now, many, many years ago, back in 1996, our house burned down in a Southern California wildfire. The entire neighborhood burned to the ground. We lost our house and everything in it. Well, not long after the fire, a man came to me, one of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest, and wealthiest men I knew. And he said to me, Rabbi, I feel so bad for you. Anything you want, just just ask me. Anything you need, just give me a call. Anything that's mine is yours. So what was I going to say to the man? Buy me dinner? Buy me a suit? Build me a house? What was I going to say to him? So I wound up saying nothing. And we do the same thing when somebody, let's say, for example, there's a, there's a death and there's a mourner. And we, we, we've all said this, call, oh, I feel so terrible for you. Call me, anything you need, whatever you want, just let me know. So instead say, I understand your uncle Charlie is coming in for the funeral. Tell me his plane arrangements. I'll go down to the airport and pick him up so you don't have to worry about it. Or is your good suit still at the cleaners? I'll go pick it up for you. Or don't worry about the kids. I'll take them out for pizza and a movie tonight. Find a need and meet it. I think that we're not in the habit of asking people specifically what they need. And also, I think we're not in the habit of asking specifically, right? In in the case that you mentioned, to, to call that person, you would have had to articulate something specific that you wanted, and you hesitated to do so. It was a very hard lesson to learn, a very hard lesson. Uh, my wife, Ellen, has uh, been a social worker and a, a therapist all her life. And I've been a rabbi all my life. We spent a lifetime doing for others. We had absolutely no idea how to ask for help for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we learned a little bit of a lesson. And it's part of the lesson that I pass on. How is it that you learn specifically what other people need? Well, you ask. Uh, okay. Yes. Instead of saying anything you want, you say, tell me what you need at this moment. If the person doesn't have a response. You can simply Ask, do you need anybody picked up at the airport? Do you have clothes at the cleaners? Can I take the kids out for dinner tonight? Mm-hmm. We can do those all, all those kinds of things. And if we can do it on micro levels, uh, we can learn slowly, slowly, slowly to do it on macro levels. Thinking about radical loving, given the pandemic and all that's happened in the last 16 months, mm-hmm. what would you say we have learned as a as a human collective about loving i wrote the book as aspirational 
here's what we could be doing. And then reality smacked us right in the face. Everything that I'd been writing about on a theoretical level, there was a, there it was every day. So it became this. I insist that we reopen because two choices. One, my pizza parlor or my nail salon or my barber shop or my clothing store is the only way that I can make money and feed my family. That's one. Two, I insist that we open so that I can go to the beach and get a suntan and that I can go to the bar and go dancing tonight. Individual freedoms and so-called individual rights versus the common good, the highest good, the greatest good. And that's been the didactic tension of these last, um, these last months and, and years, year, 15 months or so. That's the question of America. You know, we used to be a front porch community. So we have this a country that was supposed to be a melting pot, e pluribus unum, out of many one, that we were to weave together a tapestry of unity. All of a sudden, we've become a frayed patchwork quilt of special interests. Now, we all have human rights. We all have individual rights. But we also have to balance those rights. Supreme Court told us you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. My freedom ends at the beginning of your nose. The question is, where, how do we balance? And also, how do we move back towards a sense of the common good? We have no choice, because I'll reiterate it again. Either we will learn to live together, or we will perish together, because it's come to that now. I don't care about this this, uh, plastic bottle. I'll just toss it away. And that that uh, plastic bottle that I toss away winds up in the belly of a whale that beaches itself in South America. Or I don't care how much pollution comes out of my chimney in Pittsburgh, but somebody who's breathing in Paris does care because that air gets there. We are a tiny little united world. We have to be united. Great. Well, thank you so much. A great pleasure. I have been talking today to Rabbi Wayne Dosick, who is a spiritual educator and the author of Radical Loving, One God, One World, One People. Thank you so much today for being on The Shaman's Notebook. I am Suzanne Legrand, and if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe or leave a review. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.